quick heads up for our listeners, today's episode contains some music with some unbleeped lyrics. Just FYI. Hi, I'm Liz Walker. And I'm Jackie Clydesdale. And this is Choral Fixation. Digging deep, asking important questions about singing together. Like, why do people do it? And why don't they? And when? And where? <laughs> and what do they do if COVID hits and they can't sing? Oh, uh, basically the the five W's of good journalism. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the five W's of good journalism. We've just focused on one nerdy topic, and also we're not. We're journalists. not journalists. Yeah, we're really not journalists. <laughs> we're enthusiasts, and today we have the final episode in our series about protest singing. Uh, back in January, we started with an overview of the historical context. That's right, and then we moved on to a deep dive into "We Shall Overcome." the sing-along anthem of the labor and civil rights movement of the 20th century. And that brings us to here and now. We're interested in the way singing is employed or not in the modern day protest movement. And there have been actions going on all around the world. All around the world. Yeah. Uh, Hong Kong, Poland, uh, Ukraine, Chile. Lebanon, yeah, mm -hmm. India, Palestine, and more. But we decided to keep our focus closer to home. The protest movement that is a driving force for change here in North America Black Lives Matter. That's right. Black Lives Matter protests have been a part of the public life of really every mm. major North American city for the past seven or eight years. They have been necessary to repeatedly and consistently push back against the police departments and members of the public who have been killing black people on the street. Specifically, I, I had originally thought that this was specifically since the murder of Mike Brown, but it goes back further. Um, when uh, George Zimmerman was oh. let off... For, Trayvon for Trayvon Martin. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. right. So, yep. um, you know, it continued last year with the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and yeah. others, and more people got out into the streets and, and all that hurt and anger and frustration was revisited again yep. out in out in out in the streets with people out in the streets en masse. Uh, our curiosity was about how the music fits into these protests. That's right. So we spent the better part of the last year digging into and investigating protest singing. And as it turns out, we ended up shaking up and upending a lot of our own assumptions about singing in the streets, sing-alongs, protests. What it means. What it means. How it's done. You know, we talked to singers and activists and regular folks who are involved in different ways in the movement for Black Lives. And we learned about what resistance looks like and sounds like these days. And about who's joining in and what they're singing. And when it comes right down to it, we learned a lot about both music making and myth busting. Over the course of this episode, you're going to hear from four people who are involved in Black Lives Matter singing, protests, activism, and social justice, and we're going to let them introduce themselves first. That's right. So in June 2020, Liz sent me an article entitled, uh, On the March, Is Communal Protest Singing Poised for a Comeback? That was in Forbes, and you can find the link in our show notes. We decided to reach out to the author to start talking about what's going on musically in the streets during protests. I'm Micah Hendler. I'm the founder and artistic director of the Jerusalem Youth Chorus, which is a chorus and dialogue program for Palestinian and Israeli young singers from East and West Jerusalem. I also write about music and social change for Forbes.com. I've just seen over the course of my life that the most powerful experiences that I've had have been the ones that have combined the community building power of music in a context where building community is critical to achieving some sort of social change. Music, and specifically the power of singing in groups to create community, to create a sense of shared identity, 
to create a sense of empowerment in those who are included in that community. Um, because that's just kind of what I experienced growing up, you know, when I was a teenager and started a singing group, I saw that I had the ability to create that kind of community for others and show people that they could sing, even if they thought they couldn't sing. And that was like a really amazing thing. We talked to both Micah and our next guest in June and July of 2020 in the wake of the protests of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's murders. My name is Nikki Nesberry. Um, I actually work in the conservation field, but and also am an avid and longtime singer. So uh, most recently, for the past eight years, I've been singing a cappella with a group called Songrise. Uh, we are a DC-based women's social justice a cappella group, and I, I guess one of the things that really compelled me is that our mission is to inspire action through song. Um, and we, we try to embody that and live that and sort of challenge ourselves to see how we can not reinvent, but how, how we can push that mission forward, you know, it, during changing times, this being definitely one of those, those historic times, you know, where this type of uh, justice music is needed. So both Micah and Nikki are based in Washington, D.C. And most recently, we talked to a friend of a friend based in Chicago. Yeah, totally. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to dig into this conversation. My name is Colin Hudson. I'm a filmmaker, activist, podcast host, and founder of Soapbox Productions and Organizing, which is a film and social activism nonprofit specializing in multimedia storytelling for structural social change. Um, but I've always been wrestling with these, these ideas of, of um, anti-Blackness, capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, and, and as well as the, the challenges to that both in a very traditional sense as far as activism, organizing entities, people doing, you know, what we think of the idea of activism, but also very nuanced micro level uh, ways to challenge systems and then internalize uh, the, the harms that we, that we tend to do um, growing up in a, a increasingly anti-Black capitalist world um, and how we fight, that back, fight back against that within ourselves, within our community, and then on those broader ways that we see and kind of sensationalize about when we say activism. And a little closer to home, we talked to someone right here in Toronto. So my name is Patrice Roan, Jamaican background, but born here. Interestingly enough, I was actually raised Catholic and had to sing a lot of hymns and stuff during school. I actually was in a choir as well when I was in grade school, went to a Catholic school from kindergarten to grade eight. I had a lot of friends. I also went to like Baptist churches as well. Something to keep or my mother used to keep her children occupied. So we basically kind of went to two churches and we were involved or I was involved in both choirs. It's interesting to be able to have this conversation about how music and protests and all these things kind of connect. So that's my background. And then just for work, I work in marketing and I sell booze. Started advertising and now I work for a distributor saying, hey, do you want some aviation gin? You know, that's a, a, a nice plug, you know, get your, your aviation gin. We had some great conversations with these four people and we're going to bust open some misconceptions that we, the traditional <laughs> choir nerd yep, types, yep. had about modern day protest singing and that maybe you do too. So to kick things off, Micah told us about bringing Dr. Issei Barnwell to a protest last year in Washington. 
Now, if you're not familiar with Dr. Barnwell, she's an absolute powerhouse. She's an activist, mm-hmm. a singer, she's a violinist, a composer, and she conducts community choral workshops and she designs them and leads them. And she also was a, a member of Sweet Honey in the Rock, which is this legendary right. performance ensemble. Yeah, yeah. the African American, you know, uh, ensemble that does a lot of like acapella type stuff but beautiful stuff really stunning beautiful stuff so she she and micah had worked together before um he i think had studied with her at one point that's right yeah he he calls her his mentor that's right and she told him that she wasn't hearing much singing at the protests on the news so she and micah joined forces at a black lives matter protest last june and uh here's what happened then we met at dupont circle and you know helped to get people singing and that was really amazing, you know, to be like doing this work on the street in the content, like really to walk the, you know, to walk the song, as it were. And if you're trying to communicate something that is going to move people, probably going to be way more effective if you have all the tools available to you than if you're stuck with just what people can yell. Um, and so I think people were really excited because, you know, the difference between saying black lives matter and then singing it the way that Dr. Barnwell just kind of made up spontaneously, black lives matter. Come on, black lives matter. We're going to sing it one more time. Come on. It's like completely different. So Liz and I thought about it and we were like, are people joining in or aren't they? How are they participating here? You know, the fact that we can share the video with our listeners actually tells us quite a bit. Right. Now that we have smartphones and everyone can basically film stuff and put it on social media, like it just distances us from our own experience of everything. Um, because we're thinking about how is it going to live on you know beyond this moment but we're not thinking about what am i actually doing in this moment am i actually a part of this moment it's like oh i have to film it so that like for the next like infinite number of moments i've had it um and it's a way of amplifying and there are all kinds of things that are amazing about it and i do this too i'm not saying like oh the folks who are on social media like i also do this it's just how it works um but folks are way more comfortable filming than singing along Oh, the folks on social media, Jackie. <laughs> social media. That's what we were thinking. Yeah, that's right. Oh, God. It's one of our pet peeves. We're like grouchy old ladies, of you know. Why, why are you looking at your phones? But, you know, okay. The fact is the singing is happening and it is being shared. And other online experiences contribute to the overall experience of protesting, too. So, for example, Nikki was looking for a way for her choir, Songrise, to contribute to the protests in June of last year, so 2020, Mm -hmm. but was also recognizing, like, with COVID, an in-person event wasn't really possible. Right, no. Yeah. So she did what a lot of uh, choir people have done in the past year. I think you've been doing this sort of thing with your choir, right, Liz? Zoom choir. Yeah. Zoom choir. (laughs) (laughs) You got to organize that virtual (laughs) sing-along. Yeah. So she got together with the participation of Chorus America, um, to set up a sing-along 
you know, around the world, essentially, on June 19th, which is Juneteenth, a holiday celebrated to commemorate the emancipation of enslaved people in the United States. And they sang an incredibly beautiful song called Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is widely regarded as the Black National Anthem. told us the importance of video sharing for people at protests and for people who are participating at home because like many folks who've been doing the zoom choir thing for a year myself included we actually talked a lot about like the work of deconstructing a, a live choir yeah. and then reconstructing it digitally so that people can share it it is a lot of work to do and so that was her goal mm-hmm. to get people to sing together but i guess that i would look at it from the perspective of you know, there hasn't been that much music um, over the past few months anyway, because of the health concerns around COVID. And so when people do see folks singing, I think it is good for people to be videotaping or like live streaming because it's showing that there are people out there that are singing and trying to inspire people in that way. And um, again, you know, this this is we all can only do as much as we individually can to to protect ourselves in terms of wearing masks and and other precautions around not like spreading or getting an illness but i, I think yeah i i think that pe- people there are lots of ways to engage so risks at a protest aren't just limited to things like covid and illness which is something that patrice really hammered home for us so just with the i don't know I'm just going to say it as a black woman fighting so many different societal norms, I actually felt kind of afraid or scared to actually go to the protest, but I still wanted to support. And the reason for that is like the multiple hats and physically performing, like actually like getting involved in singing and having other people around. And then the performance of having to work and all these type of things all together actually made me really, really, really hesitant to actually support, like physically be at a protest. It's hard enough for Black people and people of color just to exist, much less to contribute to the movement, because there's a lot more at stake than just, like, what if you get arrested? Like, these are all the things that it's like, I almost over, I overthought so much, or I was overthinking so much about participating, because as a Black woman, it's so important for me to represent my people. But at the same time, I can't take the risk of getting arrested. I can't take the risk of violence against someone like me, which I'm 5'10", a dark-skinned Black woman who's curvy. I actually could be a target too. So all this talking just to say is that (sighs) posting to a certain extent and participating to a certain extent is a privilege. Um, I've kind of weirdo just binge watching things on YouTube and Instagram and all that type of stuff. So here we were thinking, oh, kids on their phones and they're filming and they're not participating. And they're Sing not along. Yeah. Why aren't you singing? Please yeah. participate the way we think that you should be saying, right. you know, and, and but but in, instead they are sharing the experience with millions of people at home like Patrice who can't risk 
having her body out there, you know? Yeah, she really drove home for us how many people are living their resistance every day and how exhausting that mm-hmm. is. And how much that little screen, that that weird little viral TikTok video, how much that's bringing joy and anger and energy to people in their homes. You know, Colin told me, people at home, they're doing the protest work too. They're tweeting updates. They're, they're, yeah, they're sending course. developments yeah, yeah. to marchers. They're documenting badge numbers and they're documenting incidents. It wasn't until I read my own words that I realized... Oh my gosh, I am bringing a lot of baggage to this conversation. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Absolutely. Singing the way we think they should be. We really, we want to unpack that. So that's why we started here talking about social media. And here on Coral Fixation, the podcast all about people singing together, we want to explore that and maybe illustrate that for you, hopefully. Yeah, we're going to look at all the different ways because somewhere along the line, I brought my feelings about Mm -hmm. what is righteous and appropriate to bear on how I was viewing the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020. What does singing the way I think it should be, what does it even sound like anymore? Last year when we started talking about this, we immediately thought about We Shall Overcome. Right. It's a protest classic. But we learned that while its reputation is still solid, it's still considered 20th century classic, its use is definitely fading. You know, it's funny because... That song is we shall overcome, we shall overcome. And what, what, what do they say? Someday. We're not waiting on someday anymore. Um, when I think about this conversation, I think about this Tupac interview. Uh, I believe it's in the Tupac Resurrection movie. You know, if, if I know that in this hotel room, they have food every day and I'm knocking on the door every day, to eat and they tell and they open the door let me see the, the party let me see like them throwing salami all over the i mean just like throwing food around where they're telling me there's no food in here you know what i'm saying every day i'm standing outside trying to sing my way in you know what i'm saying we are hungry please let us in we are hungry please let us in after about a week that song is going to change the we hungry we need some food after two three weeks it's like you know give me a little food breaking out the door and after a year you just like you know what i'm saying i'm picking the lock coming through the door blasting you know what i'm saying it's like you hungry you reached your level you don't want anymore we asked 10 years ago we was asking with the panthers we was asking with them you know the civil rights movement we was asking you know, now that those people that were asking, they're all dead and in jail. So now what do you think we're going to do? Ask? I'll put my gun away. There's a story we talked about in our last episode. Uh, it's all about the protests after Michael Brown was killed by the police in Ferguson, Missouri. And the Reverend Jesse Jackson got up and tried to lead the crowd in We Shall Overcome. And the crowd was not having it. You know, not not to put shade on Jesse Jackson, uh, at least not in, in this podcast, but, you know, uh, back in the day, at the 60s, 70s, we can even say 80s, 90s, you know, the the, the straight male, cis, charismatic figure was kind of the, the, the stalwart of the of, of civil rights, what we think of. Um, um, obviously, there's Ella Baker, there's Angela Davis, there's, there's <laughs> uh, lots of women and not just reforming folks um, and you know, gay folks and other people doing the work, but when we think of so fights, we think of MLK, we think of Malcolm X. Um, those are kind of how we thought about it. In addition to that, organizations have very hierarchical structures, right? Um, whereas now, um, who do you see at the forefront? You see Black 
women, femmes, LGBTQ plus folks, trans folks out there, um, uh, disabled folks out there, like not only doing the work invisible because they always have been, but they're taking up the most space and they should. And they're the most marginalized within a black community, within other communities that are disenfranchised. So I think it's it, it, it's, it says so much that Jesse Jackson was like, why isn't the song working? Because um, we're not trying to overcome someday. We're trying to overcome now. Um, and I think another layer to this is that rap didn't exist in the 60s and 70s, right? And so we think about pop culture uh, and how that evolves, especially Black pop of the culture, how that evolves, um, and that gets more unapologetic, and things that you know, older Black folks or Black folks with some some class privilege may may kind of not like that uh, we're pushing back on that and how that codifies the same systems we're trying to overthrow and and build up something new. I was saying before, I think movements, you know, and I, I think we, we work on the shoulders of our ancestors, right? This isn't to say anything against the civil rights movements, black power movements by any means, but we have to look at things and what worked, what didn't work in the, in the past. Uh, but a lot of the work back then was around, around voting. Uh, we know now and knew then too that that's not going to get us to liberation um, because of them, right? So we're standing on our shoulders, but also critiquing them, trying to build better at the same time. So it's complex and it's nuanced, but you need to have that holistic analysis in order to to make beautiful movements that I think we're seeing today. So a quick Google search reveals that a lot of the media does not portray Black Lives Matter or these protests from the past six, seven years as beautiful. And the mainstream media is confused and has a short memory. And so they're confused by the anger they see, right? And, you know, they look backwards at the frozen newsreel of history and they say, why does today's protest movement look so different? Why doesn't it sound or feel, you know, safe and whatever you know noble and beautiful like <laughs> right. it did in the civil rights movement. right yeah we shall overcome huh did they did didn't they did did we yeah <laughs> you know it was a long time ago and the, the the corporate interests that underlie modern media they're too happy to present like this over and done narrative yeah you know and That's right. and 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 i think you know as white people we we really really bought that like for sure look at look at what we did look at what happened and that's where we started on this journey when we were talking about protest music we saw the cachet of that song and the movement and it sounds transcendent yeah and historical and historical (laughs) and it sounds comfortable yeah yeah for sure you know it's so funny jackie like we we know representations of the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. especially in the nostalgic boomer media of our childhood which we were soaked in yeah for sure it erased so much of the work, like the groundwork and the practice of protests, you know, especially because we know it was done by women, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. But we still made that our point of comparison when it came to looking at what was happening right in front of us with Black Lives Matter. That's right. And and we've been told the civil rights movement is a complex subject for a lot of young Black activists. It's got a lot of cultural weight still and a lot of cultural capital, but some of that is very painful in retrospect. You, at that time, had to be of a certain status. Okay, so you want to be a respectable Black person so that you can fit into certain spaces. So what Dr. Martha Luther King represented was he's an example of a Black man that should be involved or should be allowed in certain spaces because he was educated, he was a religious figure, and there's all of this almost trying to turn people into perfect like you have to be the perfect black person in order to be 
provided with certain rights. And I think, again, that's why things are so different is because we need people to represent the people. We're not all perfect. We do have our flaws. Nonetheless, we still deserve to have certain rights and we deserve to be treated fairly. And I think when you started bringing that up, I was just like trying to bite my tongue not to jump into it because when you're not, when a system is built and you're not into consideration or it's built to block you out, you then try to mimic and be that person. So you can say, hey, I deserve to be in this space. Now, I think it's like, if I'm queer and my head is shaved and my, I have tattoos or whoever as I am, I still deserve to be treated fairly. And I'm going to protest within my community. And also that's where the regionality and all these things come together. You do not need to be a perfect, idyllic Black person in order to deserve to be treated and treated well and to be protesting. And I think that's the difference between the 50s and 60s or even further back. You had to fit into the societal norm or at least aspire to be like that in order to be heard by institutions. So the institutions, they, were, they weren't listening to anyone who didn't try to look or sound like them is another way to put that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, so we shall overcome, made it into the canon. It's a piece of bona fide American institutional history. Absolutely. And when you hear it at an anti-masker rally, oh boy. consisting entirely of affluent white people, you know something is terribly wrong. Yeah, it really is. I mean, they're... These... I don't know. These anti-maskers are are calling themselves a civil rights movement, right? Mm. Which really speaks to the way white people relate to the idea of civil rights, only as it pertains to their own feelings, but not, say, to the actual lives of black people or migrants or Muslims or LGBTQ plus community or anything like that. So it's not their lives and not what they're saying. We've... (laughs) We don't want to spend too much time on this because we don't want to center white people that way. So... You want to go down a weird little rabbit hole of people appropriating black culture again. uh, We've got some links in our show notes. Let's let Micah take us back to what's going on with singing at the Black Lives Matter protests these days. Cool. One of the things that Dr. Barnwell is also getting at was that, like, you need to organize for these things. You can't just expect that everyone's going to show up and start singing. Particularly if there isn't, like, a common repertoire. Like, that's another thing that she was talking about is like a lot of the songs in the civil rights movement came out of church and everyone went to church and everyone knew the songs. And at church, you would also like sometimes have the organizing meetings and the organizing meetings for the march were also musical. And like you would process the issues by learning the songs and by coming up with new verses for the songs. And like it was all one integrated process. And then when you go out, it's just like the movement is singing. Um, and that's just not just not the way that it's been working today in the vast majority of cases. And, and there are all kinds of reasons for that. But one of the things that I was trying to highlight in the article are some of the really innovative things that folks are doing to try to bring some of this power back to this moment in American history. Um, and that involves uh, folks like the Justice Choir uh, Network, um, who are who saw this issue back in like 2017 when everyone's going to all these uh, protests around immigration, around the Muslim ban, around detention centers, or, right? All of the different issues that have uh, really come to the fore, and no one knew what to sing, and there wasn't music of this moment, and so they commissioned a new songbook called the Justice Choir Songbook, 
with some old classics like Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Round and a lot of new protest music for this moment in history um, that people wrote for the songbook um, and or had written and included it in the songbook. And there are Justice Choir chapters popping up all over the country. And I'm actually in the process of really inaugurating a chapter in DC. Um, and that's really awesome. And the whole idea of the Justice Choir is not to be a performing group per se, but to be a core group of people that can encourage and get everybody to sing and can give like to encourage, not just in a like, Oh, go ahead. But to like, literally give the group the courage to sing the courage to sing so go find your local justice choir chapter uh they've got they're gonna help you you know really experience the music in a way that doesn't put the onus on you to keep Mm -hmm. it going you know what i mean they're doing the printouts they're doing the (laughs) lead you know what i mean so it's 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 if that's a kind of experience that you want to have at a protest they will lead you they will lead you yeah Oh, Micah was so patient with us, <laughs> right? When he was telling us answers that we just weren't really ready to hear. No, and that's right. Colin, when Colin was talking to you, like he reminded us that the songs have evolved and shifted. And with with the conversation around, around singing and movement, I, I, I it's it's a question to be had because I think it it can be answered clearly. I think I think there still is singing in in movement and protest today. I think it's different, right? Um, we're not singing We Shall Overcome, but there are there are a chance, there are songs that people will sing all together. Um, I'm thinking about something from last summer where you know, a woman was saying like, I can hear my mama singing, I can't breathe, calling out the violence of the racist police. And that kind of goes on. Everyone's kind of singing along with her. Um, you know, there's other, other things like that that aren't, that aren't necessarily to overcome, but they're very, they're more specific and they're more poignant as far as what we're going to overcome and what, how we're going to actually do it. Um, so I think uh, short answer is, I think there is still singing. However, I also think it, uh, in some capacity, it's almost kind of an unfair question because again, rap music literally didn't exist in the sixties. Right. And so the pop culture lexicon has shifted dramatically in all kinds of ways, especially with black music. So when it comes right down to it, there are a lot of black artists and a lot more songs in the songbook that are more relevant today than Pete Seeger or, <laughs> I mean, no surprise. That's not a surprise to no, us. No, that's right? right. I mean, okay. So we also got to wondering, like, has some other song then stepped into the breach, you know, embraced by the protest movements? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is Choral Fixation. It is a podcast about people singing together. And we are talking today about protest music. We'll be back in a moment. Music. Everyone loves it. But who listens to the lyrics? We do. She doesn't live in a shantytown. She lives in capital S shantytown. <laughs> yeah. You put patches from old shantytown on a resume, <laughs> you're not getting that job. You know what I mean? On the Story Song Podcast, we break down the lyrics you've heard a thousand times. Go so, to Barnes & Noble, 20 bucks, farming for dummies. Right. <laughs> Chapter one, don't farm at night. Chapter two, don't farm in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> the index is just like blizzard. See also, don't. We also look at the history of the song. So the monster matches on the R&B <laughs> Clearly it should be on the monster chart. <laughs> oh, it, was, it was number one on the monster oh, chart. Okay. Oh, the Story Song Podcast. Find it wherever you download podcasts. Thinking about 
that one song, sort of that emblematic song that maybe could take the place of We Shall Overcome. We started hearing about Kendrick Lamar's song, All Right. We heard people chanting it and singing it. And it's from his 2015 album, uh, To Pimp a Butterfly. That was huge. Some said it was album of the year. Definitely came out when people, you know, it came out at a time when people really wanted a voice and were craving probably that kind of message. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Liz, you heard a story about this and about how it came up at one particular resistance movement, right? That's right. So in 2015, there was a conference for Black activists in Cleveland. And as it was wrapping up, people were gathered outside and they were saying goodbye. Uh, Police turned up and they took a 14-year-old child into custody on suspicion that he was drunk. Uh, The crowd became very tense because they were very concerned that the child was not going to be safe in police custody. Of course, of course. And for anyone who thinks, well, what could happen to a child with cops? You only have to remember that 12-year-old Tamir Rice was shot to death by Cleveland police a year earlier. That's right. So people began to gather around. They were pepper sprayed by police. Situation was getting... Really tense. Really tense. The child's parent was called and arrived to pick up her son. And then kind of like nothing happened. Like uh, the moment of crisis passed. Right. Somebody with a cell phone started to play all right. And then the crowd started to chant along. And the crowd was dancing and shouting. And they were so relieved that this confrontation with the police had passed without bloodshed. And this detail that I've read in a few places claim that an actual butterfly floated down over their heads and maybe for a brief shining moment it became transcendent yeah that's a, for the people there you know yeah, that's a gives you shivers kind of story right. yeah mm-hmm. let's check in and see what nikki has to say about all right okay yeah i i think i see that song as um since, since it's a newer song i i don't know like I sort of hesitated to compare it to other things, but what I, I guess what I'd say is it definitely, I guess as a black person, when I hear that song, I feel like solidarity with my brothers and sisters who, you know, if I'm at a march who, who are out there with me and, and we're chanting that. And more broadly, it's sort of a remembrance that we've been through incredibly difficult times as a people, difficult, challenging, horrific, um, you name it, but but we're still here and and we can still move forward and and sort of bring ourselves and hopefully this country um, forward in a way that is more equitable and just and and healthy. So it wasn't just us, you know, trying to impose our own narrative on this. Like we heard from other places and Slate reporter Aisha Harris asked in a 2015 article, has Kendrick Lamar recorded the new Black National Anthem? And it, you know, it does arguably share a bit of DNA with We Shall Overcome. Mm, okay, let's have a listen to, like, what it sounds like. Looking at the world like, where do we go, nigga? And we hate poor, poor. Wanna kill us dead in the street for sure. Nigga, I'm at the preacher's door. My knees getting weak and my gun might blow, but we gonna be all right. All right, so now take a listen to a clip from Reverend Davis, who we featured in our previous episode, singing a very jaunty version of I'll Be All Right, a gospel classic. I'll be all right, I'll be all right, I'll be all right someday. Yes, in my heart, I do believe I'll be all right someday. 
So it's there. And like jump forward to 2020, a lot of people are asking if it's the new We Shall Overcome. So we put the question to Colin and Patrice. Is it? Is Kendrick Lamar's All Right the new We Shall Overcome? I honestly have not heard it as much. Um, I think I heard it more so when there was like anti-Trump protests of some sort. Uh, it definitely is like I think a national kind of like it came up a national kind of protest song uh, s- somehow. Um, so I definitely think that that recent what you've seen and read is, is definitely on point. Um, the interesting thing about All Right is, firstly, that I love Kendrick Lamar, I love that song, I love that album, um, and but it's very much saying like, hey, <laughs> things are really bad, uh, but we're gonna be okay, right? What I think is important. I think you want to have that kind of uh, foundation of like, no matter what obstacles we we face, no matter what's happen or reacting to no matter what conditions that are inherently anti-black and capitalistic and 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 no matter how many new machines the state makes to kill us uh we're gonna be all right i think that's important so i want to center that however i think it's also important to also have songs and feelings and chants that are directed towards specific goals or specific entities that we want to uh, combat and challenge so to be honest, I am familiar with the song. I have heard it, but I didn't, it wasn't a, a rallying song I've seen at protest. Like that Kendrick Lamar song has been likened to Tupac's music and uh, and things like that. But again, I'm going to be really honest. That's not the music you're hearing at the protest. You're either hearing content creator generated on the spot, remixed music that somebody went viral with. And more joyful songs that have nothing to actually do with protesting. Music that's more rhythmic, stuff that just makes you want to dance. That's more what I've seen at protest. And that story, as beautiful as it sounds, was specific to that moment. And that is something you want to idolize or turn into the story later. But that's not how things are necessarily working in the streets, on in the space, while things are happening. Yeah, to, to the point of of one image can't represent the movement, right? One person can't represent the movement. One song can't. Like, that would have been, uh, you know, some folks may disagree. That that may be at an inappropriate time to play Fuck the Police, right? Um, and so I think this is a beautiful example. Like, that's that's the song that talks about the moment, right? Um, that is appropriate for, for that time and, and, and how we're feeling. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there goes my theory. Oh, wow. <laughs> Okay. Well, you know what? Colin and Patrice are just two people, but they sounded really cautious when I talked to them about All Right. Yeah. They both said in their own ways, look, it's a song. It's the story of something that happened. But reality is what's on the streets. Myth is what happens online. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Yeah. Myth is what happens online. Yeah. You know, Colin said to me, look, To Pimple Butterfly came out six years ago. A lot has happened even since then, mm-hmm. uh, Lamar released Damn last year in 2020. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in his three albums, he's really evolved a political position. And Damn pushes back very aggressively on current conditions. 
You're listening to Jackie Clydesdale and Liz Walker, and we are Coral Fixation. You can contact us at coralfixations, with an S, at Gmail, or you can find us on Twitter at coral underscore fixation. The way that music and singing in particular has been like commodified and the role of music has changed in America um, from being something where like, yeah, you would just like go and like sit on your front porch and sing to now being something that you listen to, that you're a spectator of, that like you leave to the professionals. Um, And so just there isn't a lot of space in this culture for communal singing for people who are not quote unquote musicians or even quote unquote singers, like even folks who are musicians who may be virtuoso like trumpet players or whatever may still say, Oh, I can't sing. You know, there's this whole stigma around it now. Um, And I fundamentally believe that singing is something that just belongs to you by virtue of you being a human being. And some people obviously are super gifted at it. Some folks are like less good at it, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it or that therefore you're not allowed to do it because you're not awesome at it. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed is I feel like now music has actually been more of a way to gather people. And I haven't noticed so much people singing, but there's been like, it's almost been like an outdoor street party. And that's what I've noticed with a lot of the protests here. It was interesting to see how people actually kind of turn into a block party versus using music to actually protest. That's Micah Hendler and Patrice Roan, and they generously sat down to talk to us about the sound of protest. And they, along with Nikki Nesbury and Colin Hudson, they helped us reframe some of the ways that we had been thinking about singing at protests. But to be really clear, we are 100% on board with what Micah just said, which is that singing is something that just belongs to you by virtue of the fact that you're a human being. Mm-hmm. That's, that could really be our tagline, quite frankly. <laughs> Let's get back to Patrice, though, because she's got a story about a song from an unlikely source that she heard a lot. As far as the digital protest watching, I actually found that there was a lot of creator content and people were singing it. So, for example, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this story, but there was a woman who was arrested by a security guard because she was trespassing at a, at a strip club. She went viral because she basically was rapping a song to him saying that he's going to lose his job. You about to lose your job. You about to lose your job. Get this dance. You about to lose your job because you are detaining me for nothing. You about to lose your And I heard that being chanted at multiple different protests, even during the U.S. president election. That song turned into, you about to lose your job. And people were literally like jumping up and like getting all excited and hyped on a song that was a creator slash viral moment. And that's one of the other things I would say is very different with music and protest now. It's more at the moment and organic. And music is being made at the spot or a viral moment can turn into a song. People remixed it and put a beat to it and it just turned into a major, 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 major song through a lot of the protest. And the fact that this was a poor black woman who made this up at the last minute and it turned into a full track. You're about to lose your job. 
it's also showing you how activism in general is changing and the elements or the vehicles that we're using for activism is changing and it's so ingrained in current moments and raw moments that are turned into music compared to like say during the civil rights movement you would have it would be more of a religious tone now this is more protesting in music it's more let's take somebody's experience or let's take that moment and put a beat to it i think that's what we're kind of talking about and hinting at is that activism has changed and no longer do we focus on a centralized figure to represent especially in music to represent the struggle and we're now taking music and turning it into something else that ludicrous song when it first came out was a club track and it was basically like that hype song to get everybody going in this instance and i have seen coverage of that song it's literally like we're not putting up with your stuff anymore sent you a video and actually let's let's play it now there's actually a lot of videos like this because the song move bitch which was originally recorded by Ludacris, has seen a lot of play at protests in the past few years no one's proposing it's the new black national anthem or anything or it's not <laughs> right so let's play it now liz liz describe what you're seeing You know, the thing about this video is that these people are chanting it, but there are cops. There's like a line of riot cops in front of them. Yep. And the crowd's not moving. Mm -hmm. They're not moving against the cops. They're they're the ones saying move Mm -hmm. to the cops. And it's so defiant. Yeah. Um, Another person might call it provocative. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that's why it's so important to remember that there's no law against standing in front of police and singing a defiant song. Yeah, damn right. You are allowed to do that. Of course. (laughs) But, okay, this is where I can imagine a lot of well-meaning white people kind of losing their sense of righteousness and their allyship might be challenged by this sort of thing because there's misogyny in the words. There's, it's, it's, it's not a comfortable yeah. Chant. Right. Of course. I think a lot of people would prefer protesters hold hands and sing We Shall Overcome. Right? Compared to this, Compared, right? Yeah. Right? So didn't, like, you and Colin talked a bit about this, about the emotional tone and tenor of, like, a protest and, and that sort of sense of singing together. Right. So he and I talked a lot about drill rap. Drill rap is the, like, super local sound of Chicago rap music. Okay. Hip-hop. And he told me about folks like Chief Keef, who is like the most famous kind of drill rapper mm-hmm. from Chicago. And then we have songs to the drill rap conversation that are arguably very violent, arguably, you know, misogynistic, right? All the isms that we talk about outside of uh, anti-Blackness, they're, they're promoting things that, you know, maybe we don't like, but are fun, are exciting, have some kind of pushback against the state in them. And for me, being in Chicago working with and uh, observing the Black youth, uh, they're Chicago-based. I think what I heard a lot last summer, especially with protests that were uh, Black-led and or Black youth-led, you heard Finito by Chief Keefe. Chief Keefe isn't you know, a stalwart of social justice, but Finito's a fun song to dance to and turn up to, right? 
And it's about us and our joy. So why should we have to do something that you know others on the, on the outside think that you know, we should we should enjoy? Um, so that's something I I always try to center. It's like, look, we we want to just we want to have fun at the same time. And this is a just a Chicago song that everyone knows. And so I think there's this idea that every song we play or song we sing needs to be quote unquote political. But on one end, it's all political, and on the other end. Um, it's going to have some kind of unapologetic pushback against against even just that idea in and of itself, I think is, is a win in some capacity. I'm a gorilla in a fucking school, gonna pull up in zoos, nigga. Oh, nigga, who the fuck is you? I don't know, nigga, no, nigga, pull up on your blocks. We really need to interrogate that wish about things that we're comfortable with mm-hmm. when it comes to Black Lives. We don't have to like this track. No, God, no. Why would our, we? Our yeah. listeners don't have to like this track. My mom doesn't have to like this track. Mm-hmm. But we do have to remember to go back again and again and again to the phrase unapologetic Blackness mm. because angry Black Lives Matter, loud Black Lives Matter, rude Black Lives Matter, and joyful Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Music, especially black music and activism, especially black activism, has always kind of uh, towed to line with each other, right? We look at like um, "Say Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud" with James Brown back in the day during the you know, Black Power end of the civil rights movement, and, and we fast forward to today, um, and just certain rap songs that are prominent in, in, in spaces. So I think like as t- as time goes on, we can kind of do more things, and pop culture can be expanded to be a a, a, a living, breathing lexicon of, of of pushback and challenge systems to be um with that i think the movements kind of do the same thing we see activists in chicago for decades fighting those same systems that are creating communities that are having gangs as a byproduct that are maybe contributing to intercommunal violence but there's there's bigger stakeholders at play right and so it was interesting looking at those two forms of resistance that seem very different on their face, but come from the same kind of inequality and combat it in a certain way. Uh, with Black Lives Matter, with BIP 100, shout out, you know, unapologetically Black became a kind of a coined term. Yeah, the activist side, we're kind of doing s- s- different thing with a similar attitude about it. So it's interesting seeing these things happen at the same time in the same area. Um, it's very geo-specific too. Okay, you remember how in our first episode when we were talking about protest music, we talked about how familiar songs were rewritten mm-hmm. for other public purposes. And this is going back to like the medieval period. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Like, and then through the industrial revolution. Through the, exactly. Through the and taking revolution. hymns and taking all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So Patrice talked to me about people taking songs and content, uh, viral videos, clips from comedians, and then remixing them, for lack of a better word, uh, because people knew them. Mm-hmm. Move, bitch. It was completely repurposed in 2020. Yeah, that's right. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the song is taken on a new meeting, which goes back to what I was trying to say before, is that activism has changed, protests has changed, and music's role in it has changed, where it's more kind of organic at the moment and now the song is literally at that moment and i've heard that song at multiple different protests or i've seen coverage of it and it's turned it's turned into a different meaning okay and this is really what colin is saying too he was redirecting me from looking for a national song 
and he was pointing me just like he's pointing us towards real lived experiences you know people singing out of their own funny sad bitter truths yeah in the yeah. moment and then the kind of amplifying totally yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so i really think this is going back to where we started with episode one of our three-part sprawling epic about protest songs uh daniel levitin's six songs that changed the world oh that's right yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. he's looking at protest songs and so we know that they're songs with a purpose and we really we really had to discover for ourselves the purpose is a message yes but it's usually a message for the singers themselves mm-hmm. it's really about supporting each other and it's giving courage you know it's reinforcing the barricade protest usually employed songs that people already kind of knew you know they got new lyrics they got a twist and they became cries of defiance that could spread really, really fast. Yeah. So those ways of creating a sound and a purpose really crystallized with We Shall Overcome. But that purpose has now expanded and the sound with it. And that's what we've learned on this journey. Yeah. There's there's joy and there's dancing. And there's hilarity. Yeah. And there's anger and there's so much frustration because that's what makes up. It's the totality of Black people's lives. That matters. That matters and what it sounds like matters. Right. Not just the struggle and the pain and the nobility that's, no. you know, put forth by a media narrative. It's, you know, it's the, that's the movement's name. Black Lives Matter. So we are seeing old songs redone, revisited so that they reach the maximum number of people. And new techniques and new strategies, too, in the moment responses are being amplified. Hyperlocal sounds are being broadcast further and, you know, broader. Yeah. The entertainment value of a potentially viral moment being revisited over and over again. It's not where we thought we were going to end up. <laughs> no, it isn't. When we started this. Huh? It, no, that's right. Yeah, I thought, I think we both thought we were just going to learn, oh, well, here's the new we shall overcome. Mm-hmm. Or... Here's why young people are resistant to singing the old-fashioned way. But... Right. But maybe there's hope. Or... Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But what we learned is, A, people aren't necessarily resistant to singing. No. I think they're maybe just a little bit resistant to the old ways of singing and to what maybe people consider a little corny. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for sure. And... So instead, they're digging deep into things that mean something to them and that yeah. matter to them, yeah, which that's is right. online lives, yeah. which are just as much a part of our real lives, quote unquote. I know we tend to separate them, <sighs> yeah, but, but this is where we see them dovetail that's and, right. you know, they realize themselves online as well. So that's something that we tend to dismiss. Well, that's because we're old ladies. Old ladies. That's right. (laughs) But old ladies can learn new things. That's right. (laughs) And you can too. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. We are Choral Fixation. We're a podcast about people singing together. And this episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Liz Walker. And me, Jackie Clydesdale. Now, huge shout out to our participants today. We are so freaking grateful for the amazing conversations we had with you. Thank you so much. Micah Handler, Nikki Nesbury, Colin Hudson, and Patricia Rohn. Thank you so much for your time and your energy and your love. Appreciate yeah, it. I really appreciate it. So take a look in our show notes and find where you can find them online, uh, all their contact info in the show notes. We wouldn't be called Coral Fixation if we didn't think singing didn't play an important role in all this. So I kind of want to leave us with a little bit of singing because we really do believe strongly that everyone can sing. That, that thing that Micah said, that mm-hmm. we are imbued by our very humanity 
with uh, a right to sing. That's right? right. And that it connects people. And so we wanted to leave you with something that Nikki told us. Um, she was sharing one of her experiences about being at a protest. So I'm going to I'm going to end with Nikki. And gave you shivers in the back of your neck. That's right. The most meaningful times are when we really feel like we're connecting with our audience. Uh, I guess a, a, a more recent kind of larger event, we in 2017, we sang at the Women's March uh, on stage uh, at, at Freedom Plaza, I believe. And, and we sang I'm Going to Stand. And, and I was on one of the solo parts for that. And that was... I think that was the first song that we sang when we, we sort of came out on stage and it, the song has a lot of conviction and, and sort of defiance, uh, standing up uh, against uh, injustice. It felt like everyone was with us or we were with everyone, um, I guess, in spirit and body. Um, and like in the moment, it's sort of, it's almost indescribable to, just to have that connection with, with other people. It's just that that connection is, is very important. We will not bow down to uh-huh, racism. We will not bow down to injustice. We will not bow down to exploitation. I'm gonna stand, I'm gonna stand.